Turn on your mechanical translator. Oh, uh, well, sure, of course. I've uh, got them right here. My guess is, sir, that they use microwaves for what uh, you might call person-to-person -person conversation. The basic idea is that there's a groove that I can follow that's exactly right for me to live in an optimum way. Truth. And so... Right, uh, today we have uh, what I hope will be an interesting guest, a little bit left field. Um, uh, we're going to talk to Michael Fode. Now, those of you who have been in advertising in New Zealand as long as me will know Michael, who uh, was, uh, I believe, uh, ECD of DDB back in, in New Zealand, back in the day. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, then went over to Australia and was um, e ECD? ECD in Sydney. DDB Sydney. For a big stint, and then Melbourne. Okay, and since then, um, Michael has gone on uh, to be one of the biggest selling poets yes yeah, in the world i know remarkable in the world which is quite extraordinary and um crazy he, he lives with his partner lang liev lang liev who is also one of the um, biggest selling poets oh she's the real in the talent world. in the yeah, family I, I, yeah I, I i can believe that michael um so extraordinary story that um yeah, poetry. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew it was a thing? I thought it. I thought it died out in Victorian times, but it's still oh, going well, strong. Well, well, poetry. I mean, I, I think there was an article. I don't know the actual date, but it was only a few. Michael well, knows few, no dates. I don't know. I went, oh, I know Churchill's birthday, eighteen seventy-four. Okay. <laughs> so we've established that one. So there's a, a good beginning. But no, but I, I read somewhere that I think it came from Barnes and Noble, the U.S. book chain, um, and it said, I think the headline was, "Poetry is dead." Yeah, and that was the sort of big battle cry. Uh, also, if you any of you have been one of be would be writers, and you look at sending manuscript submissions to especially the overseas publishers, often many of them on the websites have but no poetry submissions. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it, it was this nice little niche that was doing a bit of business from mainly university students. So it, it was actually sheer bloody mindedness. But we'll we'll, we'll come to. Come to the poetry to side uh, in a minute, Michael. Uh, we will uh, first first talk about advertising. Mm -hmm. So, how did you get into the business? Uh, Ma uh, Michael's dad, Doug Foday. Yes. Who, uh, in a sense, kind of hired me foolishly to DDB. No, Doug loves you. Twenty whatever years ago, yeah. he loves me so much. He moved to Perth. Yes, to that's get away true. from both of us. Absolutely. Um, uh, so uh, uh, Doug Fode was and still is Michael's dad. <laughs> yes, so, and remarkably so. Uh, and I actually first met Michael in in uh, I can't remember it was some bar in about. It was in a, it was yeah it was I I don't know where the bar was. I yeah. mean how could we have possibly remembered at that time of the night. Anyway, yeah. yeah, I met you in a bar, and you sort of come from somewhere. England, I, it's called England. Yeah, that oh, that's right. That that country, two thirds of the world, and all that sort of yeah. stuff. Churchill, yeah. <laughs> out there, you know. Let's go get them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, that's where you know someone tapped me on the shoulder, then sort of said, "Oh, you know, this guy, you know, you should check him out. This one." And you'd come. You've been away writing a book on an island or something. Correct. Like yeah, I've been in the Cook Islands. Yeah, um, doing some writing. So you, so uh, uh, going back even before that, um, that those dark times in in some bar somewhere in Auckland with a thump 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 music. Yeah. How did you get into the business? Well, I mean, the first 
advertising agency, and I mean, I know it's a podcast, but I'm using that fingers inverted commas, he is. was um, it was a place called NAS Advertising in Perth. And it became part of what the Neville Jeffries Group, which was a kind of Australian-owned agency at the time. That so is that where you were brought up in Perth? Yeah, I was, I, I, was, I was born in the UK and raised in Australia, basically. Went yeah. to a particularly horrible school around about when I was, I was about 13, you know, 13. So I sort of grew up in the UK, got sort of transplanted to Australia, which was always fun around that time in the 70s. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was Perth. But I worked for this sort of agency, but it's how I got there, you know. It wasn't like I just walked into advertising, because to be honest with you, advertising was something I never would have wanted to do. My father was in advertising. Yeah. And he, at the time, was running and working in advertising in Perth for agencies. I think McCann was just one of them, uh, R&M, maybe. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they used to have these, like, crazy barbecues. So I would probably be, like, a teenager, young teenager. And then I'd see my dad's friends around. They're all laughing, drinking, and having this frivolity. And I always thought, geez, you know, all these adults <laughs> acting like this. And so it was a world that I never really gravitated to. It was not on my shopping list to do but did you not think that there's because this happened to me i used to, to my, my dad worked in advertising and he used to go to the the uh, rugby charity rugby in london with all um, advertising folks there and that's when i first kind of got in, interested in the business i was probably about 12 and there right. were lots of large blokes in fur coats with pipes and cigars talking loudly quite drunk and laughing at their own jokes and an awful lot of uh, girls in miniskirts. I think they were pimps, weren't they? Running around. They told me they were advertising yeah. people. And, um, and I thought, this this looks like fun. This isn't, yes. uh, you know, <laughs> this isn't um, church youth club. Right, yeah. But you went, oh, no, I don't like the look of that. Well, well, I didn't see all the girls. Ah. First, uh, look, to put it bluntly, I, I, I didn't see all of that. And because it was Perth, it's very hot. There are not many people wearing fur coats. Uh-huh. I think if I'd got that sort of vision, then maybe I'd have thought, well, you know. Um, well, I mean, that was in the politically correct times, wasn't it? You yeah. know? And I, I think that fur coats are terrible for the record. Um, yeah. But no, I, I, I didn't have that. I, I left home relatively early. Um, I keep saying I'm... Uh, 11? Sorry, 11. Well, 11, 11 going on 17. Yeah. So it was around about that sort of period. Uh, and my dad and my mum transferred with my sister to Melbourne. He'd got a job in Melbourne. Uh, sort of first big posting. And I decided that my friends were here in Perth. I would stay. I would take care of myself, find somewhere to rent with friends. You know, the mattress on the floor kind of gig. Yeah. So I did that. And I didn't bother going to university i was more inclined to go out and get work hmm. and i you know there wasn't GoFundMe pages in those days i wasn't like i want to pursue whatever can you please give me money so i just go through the job columns you know and there was a lot of job columns and i saw one which was for working for a cinema advertising company yeah so this is the first sort of step to a very hopefully for you poor short journey but um and i applied for it i went there and i turned up in this building this sort of office for wa cinema advertising and it was you know run by a guy called mr white and his wife worked there and his daughter natalie so it was a family business and what they did was i met this sort of sales manager 
and his name was I won't use his name, but let's just call him David. And he's and he'd been around. I mean, and he gave us some training and said, "Your job is to go and knock cold call prospects, clients, um, and get them to advertise on cinema." And the big point of difference, the USP, wasn't that they, you know those, you go to the movies, you got your chock top, and uh, a slide comes up, you know, Terry's Vacuum Cleaners. The Next best door there to is. the cinema. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, their point of difference was this. They would do your ad on 35mm Kodak Eastman film. So what they would do is they'd take your photograph, put it... Uh, uh, a camera over it and they could do a technique where the camera moved slightly and it would give the impression of somebody looking through your shop or your store just imagine that magic and you could be up there on the silver screen alongside people like coca-cola big car companies it was your opportunity for your souvlaki bar to be up there with the big boys and the great thing about uh cinema that was explained to me was that when people come in it, it, it's fairly dark and they look up at the screen. So they watch your ad. Whereas on a newspaper, I mean, you know, they can just turn the page. And often the ad, if you're lucky for the Suvlaki Bar, is a very, 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 very tiny ad. And for that amount of money that you would waste sticking it in there, you could be up on the big screen with the big brands and the big clients. And, and you, you see, said, Michael is an actual salesman. He's trying to well, sell me. Well, that's what they, they told me. And, you know, you would sell it... By, by the week, you, they've got to buy a bloody week of appearances, and they can buy, buy one cinema or multiple cinemas. They even had drive-ins at that time in Perth, good weather, but you never made as much money on the drive-ins. So you go out there, you'd sell it, you go and knock on the door, and if someone signed, they had to sign up then. But the hardest part of the sale was you had to say to them, just when you've got them all, I might give this a go. I'm not sure about it, though. And they'd go, you say, well, you know, it's a 52-week contract. <laughs> you know, far out, you know. Mm. And you have to get them to sign, 52 weeks commitment. Now, it might be 35 bucks a, a week. Sometimes more if they got multiple cinemas, if you could really push them, you know. And you take the contract back. You go in, and Mr. White, who was vertically challenged, a small man, mm. um, his wife was she's seen I'm sure she wasn't she seemed absolutely fucking insane but they'd come in and they'd greet you and then this David sort of guy the big sort of salesman who would put like cars use car salesmen to shame I mean this was the ultimate man you know he was the guy who would knock on the door when someone said no to him he ran around the back and knocked and said oh I'm glad I got you there's a really rude bastard at the front door <laughs> I mean this was you know all he was missing with his suitcase with fucking dustpans and things in it but you know, you walk in there and they would giggle. Mr. Wright would visibly giggle, want to sit you down in his office to ask you about the sale. And when the prospect signed it, what did they look like? And things like this. And I was, I don't know, I was probably about 18, 19 at the time. And I said, well, you know, we've gotten to do it. And he would be so happy. But one thing I would say for WA Cinema Advertising, they paid us 15% of the contract. So if you signed a, a dude up, for 30 bucks a week, 50 bucks, we're 100 bucks a week times 52 weeks, you earn 15%. So you have a good run there, you're walking around on the weekend with swags and money. Some weeks I turn over $1,500. So, so you in 19 in the 80s, early 80s, Paul. So, so you're getting good money doing that, and you were writing the ads for them as well. Well, there wasn't well, more writing, really, was there? Well, we had an art department, I'll do the inverted commas again, uh, in there who would lay out Letraset. And they had this camera operator down at a like a film lab, 
And he was like, he seemed to be drunk all the yeah, time. Rostrum. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was drunk. Rostrum camera. Yeah, drunk. He was drunk all the time. Yeah. And he would, he was part somehow connected with the business and he would uh, do that. But no, it wasn't. It was selling. And the, the place also had two magazines, lifestyle magazines, um, WA Scry and WA Looks, and they were glossy, full cover, and they had sales reps working there. It wasn't big. So you talk about probably the whole company was about oh, 20 people, if that. So you got to know each other, but that got me into advertising. You're listening to Truth and Soul. And so you, you, you went from there to a... Agency. To a, yeah, an agency. agency. Because that, that taught you selling lessons, I'm sure. Well, this is where it's leading to. No, well, it, it taught me, well, yes, it taught me to sell, to not be frightened, to think on your feet and mm. to ask for the order. And also to understand that you've got to think about why would this medium be any good for the person? And I think that was gave me the difference. No, no but the, Mr. White, um, like, you know, he had this party one night and him and his wife came down the stairs and they had matching black leather trousers on. Which is, I mean, it's a very strange, strange company. Well, no, no, he just announced one day to myself and a friend of mine who was the sales manager. I wasn't the sales manager. He was the sales manager of one of the magazines. He said, I've sold the company. I said, oh, great Christmas party, huh? Hmm. He said, well, yeah. And he said, now, good news is, he said, Michael, you've got a job. I thought, fuck, that's good. Okay. He said, no, but you're going. I've sold you with Barry here. You're going to work for the new owner of WA Esquire magazine, I've sold it to him. I've told him that you guys are good salespeople and it will work out for you. And I've done that because you've done such a good job for us. So you're, you're kind of a indentured slavery? Yeah, like chattels on a house. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can keep, oh, the lamp, yeah, yeah you can take the lamp. Yeah. No, 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 <laughs> well, we, we, we go there. I thought, oh, I was young, so I thought, oh, okay. And I hadn't sold magazines, so I jumped from cinema, I'm selling magazine. Now, magazines are, is a bit of a different format. Not that much different, because our ads on didn't really move that well on cinema. But I went there and, and met this new guy. We'll call him Montague. Monty. Yeah, Monty, like the dog. <laughs> and he, he had a little office, and we hired one of our friends as the art director, and uh, on the first time we sort of met this bloke, he came in and said, you know, you may, you may have seen me before. And I was thinking, no, I fucking haven't seen you before. He, he said, you know, I was the guy on 60 Minutes. And, you know, for, I'm sure you listeners know 60 Minutes is, was a journalistic show. It was especially back uh, in the 80s. It actually did stories with semi-facts. Yeah. Uh, and often covered a lot of, you know, like con men in Australia. And he said, yeah, you might have seen me on 60 Minutes. I was the guy, you know, accused of selling those um, fraudulent tapes. I thought, fuck me, you know, that's a good you, beginning you, to meet your, your you, new you owner the boss. Time. Uh, absolutely. I thought, well, we're in the right company <laughs> here, you know. What, what were the tapes that he sold? Well, <laughs> he, he had the, there was plenty of tapes sitting around this office. So of course we, we oh, blank well yeah, well we got them the little, you know, the little cassettes, kids. That's what they were, little cassettes. And it sort of said, you know, how to give up smoking. You'd put the tape in and you'd hear the sounds of crashing waves, right? It's just for the entire tape. So it's supposed to be it's a subliminal message. Mm. So subliminal, you'll never hear it at all. And you could play this tape. I'm not sure what was on there. It could be telling you, you know, go and, go and murder someone, you know, it mm. could be on there. I just think there were sounds of sea and he was flogging them. It's a bit like, you know, get your miniature portrait of the queen, only fifty nine ninety five. Hang it with pride in your house. 
and you get a stamp sent to you. You know, yeah. that's, I mean, it was that kind of thing, and it, that was never going to last. He, he didn't even print business cards, for goodness sakes. And so my friend and so, I... So, sorry, so he was selling tape, blank... Well, he was. Blank I think tapes to, to what to, to people going. Uh, listen to this, and you'll give up smoking. Uh, exactly. You know, probably yeah. that was a big magazine culture in Australia at that time. So you look on the back of the magazine. Give up now. It's so easy. Uh, get this tape. Lay back mm. in bed, and by the morning time, you won't be reach, reaching for the windfields. I would have no thought ma- there was worse fraud going on in Australia than that. Well, there there were. Look, I think that's the icing on the cake. <laughs> you know, to be completely frank with you, I, I agree with yeah. you. I mean, and he obviously had the money to move state and buy a magazine for Mister. White, <laughs> Mr. White, you know, sold it. And this guy sent us out. He said, now get them business in. And he said, I've thought about a repositioning for WA Esquire, because this was focused, focused towards men. He said, it's the, it's the magazine for men that women like. I said, all right, OK, fuck, <laughs> oh, that's great. And he said, you know, so we'd... Right, what, women back- like the men or the magazine? Well, probably both. Yeah. I mean, okay. I mean, I, my friend and I thought we've got to make some generate some money. So we'd go like to the wine area of Perth. Think, why don't we do a story on wine? That was a good opener. So you knock on vineyard. Say, hey, we're doing a story for WA Esquire on wine. Not sure where you'd be interested. As you probably wouldn't, but we're going to be doing a few on there. We just want to check so you don't miss out. Oh, I said, what is this wine thing? Mm. And we didn't have cards. So they said, so where are you from? You've got a business card? No, zip. But we managed to sort of build a feature and, and sell. We also hired, um, got escort agencies. You got them? Yeah. Oh, as clients? Oh, yeah, we got them. We got first to sell into um, with a WA Cinema Advertising, so we got them to come across. We used to do cinema ads based on relaxation, Paul. Nothing, you know. Nothing, nothing no, 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 you go out there you know, for relaxing times, come to Aphrodite's. Okay, Perth in the 70s. So, look, well, 80s, actually. 80s. Yeah. Now. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, 80s now. <laughs> but no, but where that's leading to was that it was always a, a basis of selling and selling, doing this. Montague's company went bust, so we're out on my luck again. And I went and worked for Pearl and Dean Advertising, where they did slides, and it was run by a sociopath, you prick. Mm. But uh, I'd say that to his face if he was here. But, mm. um, bastard. Bastard. No, look, he's probably just a sociopath. He can't help himself. But through that, I came across this ad agency called NAS Advertising because I'd gone for one of their clients, and I got referred by the client, you need to talk to our advertising agency. So I went along. And I met with the, uh, I think, the account executive, and I sort of did a double take. He was one of the guys who used to work at this WA Cinema Advertising. Mm. And I go, wow, John, you're here. And he goes, Michael. He said, come and sit down. He said, what are you doing? And I told him, and he said, fuck that. He said, come and work for us. He said, I'll put you in accounts. You can so be an account a man, a suit. You can yeah. be a suit, and you can work with me. And he said, believe me, there's a lot of big clients out there. And we, we can go and get them, and it's easy. I said, well, yeah. I said, it pays, or is it commission? He said, no, he said, that's the best part about it. He said, it'd be slightly less than what you're earning, probably, and I wasn't earning much with Montague, and I was out of a, a place. So I said, absolutely, of course, John, when do you want me to start? So that's how I started. I started for a long way to getting into it. I started as a suit. So how did you go from suit to, to copywriter? I'm, I'm guessing you're a copywriter, not an art director. Well, I worked as the suit, and I had a couple of clients. But when when did you switch to the to the creative side? Was it at National? Oh well, no, because one of my clients was uh, the, one of the, the biggest and the largest 
furniture and electrical retailers, they had this really catchy name. They were called Vox Adian. So, Vox Adian. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's about the the, your, the future of electronics. Even though the name, I go Vox Adian. It sounded like 1920s. They had 78 mm. records playing on there, you know, yeah. and Matt Busby singing. But it, it, it was kind of like I worked for them. They were... I thought a nice client, a demanding client. They're in, I mean, Perth's a pretty retail town, and these people, I mean, it's the days of newspapers, kids, when they actually ran lots of ads. DPSs, double paid spreads, regularly, not to mention catalogues pumping out all the bloody time. And it was just necessity when the catalogues came through, it was all hands on deck. You just get the stuff from the buyers, the product list, you have to write it. So I started writing catalog copy. Yeah. And then I found a perverse, an absolute perverse pleasure in doing it. And you got this incredible freedom. You know, you'd, so I started writing things in the catalogues. I, I just go, you know, like, you know, keep your neighbours awake with this Sony boombox. They'll be sure to call the cops. <laughs> you know, to talk about yeah. it, it's got three speakers and you list the bullet points. Mm. Or, uh, you know, uh, mum will be thrilled when you give her this sunbeam iron for Christmas. So I just sort of would tear at the place a little bit up within the catalogue. And surprisingly enough, no one seemed to care. And I, I enjoyed it. I kind of liked it. And so much so that they said to me one year, look, the Christmas catalogue is the big shrine for Voxadian. We, you know, we want a theme for it. And I thought, Fuck, well, you know, generally it's, you know, it, it's Santa Claus, it, it, mm. Rudolph, mm. a red nose blinking next to a price point or whatever. Yeah. So I just said, well, stupidly, in this meeting, I said, well, why don't we just base it on the three wise men, right? I said, so, you know, why don't we have an ad with the three wise men, they can't find the bloody stuff, and I say, you know, fuck this, we'll go to Voxadian. Oh, wow, look at all this stuff. Jesus will really love this. So they agreed in the meeting. This was before, you know... You before anti-blasphemy laws. Well, well, yeah, and you can't... You know, happy holidays and all of that. You know, yeah. when, you know, when people were less easily shocked and you didn't need warnings on the newspaper articles, heaven knows how we survived before then. But, yeah, um, yeah they bought the concept and we shot the ad. So it was my first TV ad, Paul. And you kind of... In those days in Perth, there wasn't the TV ads you didn't make a lot it was a very print dominated town unless you had some good clients they would shoot ads most of the ads will give you an example i think the one of the biggest companies was called pedro video pedro video so you know you know it wasn't pedro film it's pedro video and it's pedro's the company and it was pedro who operated the camera and that's yeah. about it with that like that you know like those little lamps you got over there you hold that on the thing right so we made this ad, and of course the client was, wanted to be in it. Three of the buyers said, I want to be in that ad. That way it'd be funny, all my family will see me in the ad. So they had to dress them up as three wise men, the clients, they never acted. Hmm. Not that really Well, you never made an ad. So I, never made an, I never made an ad, it's all perfect. I didn't even get to actually go on the shoot the ad, because hmm. I was that junior, my boss hmm. went, and I, th I think him and the art director, they did it, thank God. Yeah. And it was just this mental i mean i wish i had it now it'd be very very funny if you smoked a few joints but it's that was the very first ad i ever got to do but it, it ignited a passion in me to say you know i don't know if i like this account service business i like the clients i've always loved clients uh but i like this writing game i enjoy writing the catalogue I like the idea that you can something can come out of your mouth really ridiculous, absolutely freaking ridiculous, and these sort of people might go that that's a good idea, 
that's got some sort of tangibility. So I said to them, there, folks, we have advertising summed up. Well, probably. I wouldn't say that. Uh, advertising is is lies well sold, if you want it summed up. But and I do believe that. Uh, but but and that's for another time. But. I had to then just say to the boss, could I jump from being a suit to doing the creative thing? And he, oh, he ummed and ahed and rubbed his chin a bit. And he said, you can, but we can't pay you as much. And you leave a gap. And he said, well, I'll let you. I'll make you a deal. You can be a suit and write ads. Do both. And keep the salary you've got. So I did that. And at night, because we never got a chance to do anything decent, I, I started to send off uh, the Australian Award Annual. Mm. And at the time, they were filled with ads by Campaign Palace. Yep. And they did wonderful print ads. And so because growing up in Perth, print was the main medium, I fell in love with a lot of the work that they did. And I used to, at night, just write ads. Ads that I could, for phantom clients, people I didn't have. I guess today you call it, you know, working on your book. Yeah. So, so uh, just a bit of background. Campaign Palace was the best uh, and best known agency in Australia for quite a while quite a while and it, it was it was oh, you know like, like the bbh it of, was it of was australia yeah we well, had yeah, jack vaughan your old mate jack vaughan who first hired me in london in there you go 1820 1820 absolutely yeah. Yeah. but yeah well he was there um a lot of people went through that i think even i think uh, devo was there may have been um i just trying uh gordon trimbath gordon trimbath um What's the TBWA? It was Wyburn, Scott Wyburn, I think. Scott Wyburn. So, so they were, uh, and so they were the, like the boss agency. They were the uh, in, in, in Australia, and they then got bought by WPP and closed the door. Closed the after. door. I mean, at their at their best, and they're they're at their best for a while. I mean, they're doing tremendous work. Um, and I would I, I would see their ads because it would be littered. Uh, that's the wrong word, not littered. They'd be shining from the albums. Uh, that, that, that you would see when you read the book. So I, I, I guess, sorry, Michael, yeah. the, that they were the equivalent in New Zealand of Saatchi and Saatchi Wellington back in the day. They yes. they kind of were the, the shining beacon for creativity and the rest of the industry caught up eventually, but at the time they were... At, at the own. time, and I mean, as you know, Paul, Saatchi's Wellington in, in its heyday, I'm, I'm sure you're doing fantastic now. But... In the in the period of Kim Fall, it was a killer. Is a killer killer shop. I would say that the Palace were not only as good as them, probably better. Oh, I'd say they well, they were a lot bigger. They were, yeah, and they, they, the work was iconic. They they were good at TV with Ants Pants, um, whole proof work. Mm. I'm wearing no knickers. Their print was just magic. The mm. copywriting was superb. And they weren't afraid to do things, you know, like 15 by 3s, which is for the old days explained on the newspaper, column centimetres by 3, you know, 15 centimetres by 3, three columns. columns yeah. And they could stick an ad in there and, and turn into poetry. So I used to, that would inspire me to go home and when I wasn't hanging out with my friends or doing something, just play around and just write ads. I guess you created your own sort of ad school that they have now. You just did it your own. You say, what if a battery never died, that old chestnut, and things like that. Yeah. So, so I, I, I covered well, it. Well, stickiest glue, and uh, 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 long as lost in battery. So you were doing it on your own, or you had someone to... No, just by myself. Yeah. It was... It was. Well, a lot of my friends used to smoke dope. Yeah. Paul. Um, 
Did you, Michael? I can cut out your answer later. No, well, I have tried it. And yeah. I used, yeah, of course I used to uh, smoke some. Um, mm. But... It doesn't help, does it? Well, no, I don't, I don't think it's any... For the, well, for some people it does. I was... Who is it? Um, Seth Rogen, the actor and writer. Yeah. He's stoned, he says, all the time. And he works that way. And he writes his scripts that way. And he says it works for him. So I guess it, it works. It doesn't necessarily work for me. Uh, no, uh, mate, I wouldn't, I wouldn't encourage it. Kids. Well, obviously no. I mean, I, you, I, you know, it's horses for courses. Um, and we didn't do it all the time. I wasn't sitting there, you know, playing Cheech and Chong movies in the background, smoking a joint and writing. No, so that's... But I think when I was bored, I'd just go in my bedroom and write ads. And some were terrible. And others were worse. But, mm. you know... <laughs> but it was enough. And then I came for a trip to New Zealand. My dad, by that time, had moved from the eastern states to New Zealand to go to DDB and I shared some of the work and he put it in front of I, I don't know maybe Pete Thompson at the time yeah. I'm not sure I'm not sure so, um, Pete Thompson the creative director of DDB at, at some stage around then I worked with Pete for I don't know f- five six years um, five hundred years five hundred years right there's three uh, apples a great uh, great guy very funny he had oh, two hilarious. jokes he told them a lot <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he had great ways of explaining things. There's, there's three apples on a page. <laughs> yeah. This one here is attached to a tree. Which yeah. one is the freshest? Yeah, <laughs> you know, okay. But no, he's Pete's a wonderful man. Uh, uh, Pete's a legend. Don't see him around. And and uh, Mrs. Pete. Oh, Judy. Judy well, is legend. still head of TV at DDB. I ended up there for yeah. my sins. The money was dreadful. Yeah. I remember, I think it was for memory. Um, I've got my phone when I was there. 1989, right? So I moved across, yeah. uh, took the job. I think the money was about $13,000 a year, which was like pretty low, even for the time. But it was enough to get me started. And it was a sink or swim. It was made pretty clear to me. Yeah. You know, your dad's running it. So don't embarrass him. Um, secondly, there's nothing certain here give me a look in and you got to go for it and so I did and, and I'm grateful to Peter Thompson Peter mm. Thompson me what too. A, yeah what a fabulous that's my first CD mm. I mean in that day there was a CD that was the the boss there wasn't you yeah. know chief creative officers a row of ECDs and more CDs down the corridor he was the CD yeah and I really like Pete he took me under his wing um We'd worked together. He was working with a writer called, a very good writer called Paul Westlake, and they were working. But Westy, yeah, Westy. So I was, I was, you know, I was put into the smallest office, the broom cupboard, had a mop on the on the corner, and I I I worked there, and I worked as best I could, listened, tried to learn as much as I could, very very quickly, and it was a, you know, I I started with they had Ford at the time because it was DDB Needham, Mm. Uh, they had the Ford account, and they gave me the spare parts catalogue <laughs> I thought wow you know I've moved up in the world from Vox yeah. Adian that no one's heard of to Ford so yeah. I thought bonus I went home thinking absolutely bonus I've arrived yeah and, I, and they'd say oh we need something by tomorrow so I just came back and I said well we'll take the typeface um, and we'll set it in a block of ice and photograph it you know look, look what we've done to our prices you know no wonder they mm. won't burn a hole in your pocket boom tish mm. so and put it in ice so they're frozen and they said oh they took that out Ford liked it and then they gave me Bacardi brand to look at what would he do with a Bacardi. So I did that. 
And then eventually they got me uh, an art director. And I started to feel a little bit part of the system rather than someone that's just, a, you know, your dad's son working there. And that it, was a, it, was, it was a good time. That's where I, I, I got the break and they got me an art director called Ruth Martin. And she was more experienced than what I was. And I was very lucky, very lucky to, to meet with her and work with her. She was fabulous. She put up with me. And we started to do some ads together. We got given Daryl Enco, which is an agrochemical company, which no one wanted to do. I didn't realise. Back, I mean, back in 1989, no one was really sort of going, sort of saying, oh, that's Monsanto in disguise. Yeah. I wouldn't work on it now. But the client was fabulous. They were really lovely uh, clients. I liked them a lot. We'd fly down Roof and I to New Plymouth. I don't know if you've ever been to a poison factory. Not that I'm saying you make poisons, but have you been to one, Paul? I, not knowingly, no. <laughs> I do mean not knowingly. <laughs> oh, look, what's these big vats here with big skull and crossbones. I don't know why I'm here. I was just going for a walk. So not knowingly. Well, yeah. But no, um, I like the client. And the, one of the biggest challenges, they said, was that they did a lot of posters in in places that sold chemicals and fertilizer chemical shops chemical shops they sell that fertilizer High street chemical shops you know combine harvester blades shit like that yeah. right and it's not shit it's important stuff that's how you eat thank god for our farmers i say yes so let's support them but you know they said the people there's so many posters everyone how, how will our poster stand out and i remember ruth and i thinking well maybe if it's just not another big pack shot like all the other pack shop and you got round up with big pack shot and you're all saying we kill weeds hmm. if we could disrupt the space that would be kind of cool so we created a poster it was a, a real helicopter photograph we want a real helicopter photograph flying upside down and its blades are cutting the reeds and it says um you know i don't know what the line is or you get really serious with your brush weeds and use grazon pack shot yeah. small pack small pack shot big picture big image yeah. Upside down helicopter. So he shot it, flipped the helicopter, spinning rotors, bits coming off the damn yeah. bloody reed. They loved it. And in fact, th when they went and all the reps took them out, the people who had sort of said, I want two. Can you got two of those? I want one for my, for my kid. Or I want this. People would come and ask for the damn poster, hmm. stick it up in the barn, put it in the shed. And so the client was then very bullish, very bullish. This was like a sort of hit, and it, it picked up some uh, metal and for Ruth and I. And so we did another one with bloody giant farmer pulling a big giant goat. And then the client said, I like to make a TV ad, you know, the, the upside down helicopter ad. <laughs> and we like to make that. And Ruth and I said, well, God, yeah, you know, yeah. absolutely. I, I don't know how to fly a helicopter. But. Don't know how, how you're going to do it. Uh, but we did it and we went to Flying Fish and they had a director there called David Green. Originally, I think I want, I'd love to have had Richard Gibson do it. Richard was sort of a young director and I'd see him at the fish parties. And I always, there was something about Richard. There was an instant chemistry. I like Richard. And, but David Green got the job from Fish and he had done special effects directing and ironically there's a movie called Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone um, I must have missed that well yeah it, it's a missable movie Paul I mean yeah. you can get out tonight if you want <laughs> if you want to you know lose a bit of your life watching it but there's a helicopter scene where it crashes near him and the, the trick at the time the one effect was that 
they used two different size helicopters. So they used a, a full-size helicopter and a large radio-controlled model of the same helicopter. So when they did it, it seemed like all seamless they could do it. Like Thunderbirds. Yeah, but without the strings, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. They didn't yeah. use the thing in strings. Yeah. Because you can't because it's got a rotor on it. Yeah. Oh, if you oh, put the freaking just strings cut on it. it. <laughs> yeah, you just cut it. I mean, you can try it. Mm. And they up goes the helicopter, the real one, and it had little gorse bushes like they do on those planes. They cross them out, kills. And then these guys turn up with the radio control thing. And you have to sit in cages. The cameramen were all in cages. Because this thing was big. Mm. We got the Radio Control Modeling Association. They built one. And it was dangerous. I mean, freaking dangerous. Yeah, that thing come whizzing by with blades. You know, he'd be the headless yeah. horseman. Yeah. Headless horseman, off we go. But they, they got that. They, 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 they got that. And we also shot another ad while we're shooting that ad. Because Ruth and I worked on the script, and I written the script, and it was for the sister um, weed killer called Tordon. And we just got a Mr. Puniverse at the time. And he was this skinny guy, Mr. Puniverse. And we got him to come to a field, stand there, and he's in a singlet and gum boots. And he just started to pose. The, you know, the camera starts and opens on him. And he just goes through these, like, poses as, as if he's a muscle man. I said, imagine you're Engelbert Humperdinck, but you're a muscle man like Arnold Schwarzenegger. There's all these screaming women. You're just showing off your body, and every time they do, they're going for it. Of course, when he was doing it, it was absolutely well it was a lot funnier and it didn't look it just looked boom 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 and irritating we made him play up to the camera and then a voice just came in very dry and said you know to rid your property of gorse broom and uh, other obnoxious weeds and the pack shot came and went and bumped him out of frame get tough get torden we shot it in probably about two hours not even that while the big helicopter thing well the helicopter did okay but torden picked up grand prix electronic at axis Hmm. So that, that would have been mid-90s? Mid-90s, yeah. Or mid or early 90s. Early. So Ruth and I, you know, we, we had a, a Grand Prix Axis under our belt very quickly. And out of something, that just shows you the randomness of advertising, you know. Uh, just something, something that you did at the time. So what, um, what year did you move across to Sydney? I went across the ditch in 1999. Okay, so ten, 10 years at uh, DDB yeah. um, Auckland. So you went over to um, DDB Sydney, which uh, and you worked with Gary Horner? Was Gary there then? Yeah, well, I, I met Gary in Miami, yeah, of all of places. Uh, uh, there was a, some big McDonald's conference, yeah. and I, 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 they asked for New Zealand and Australia to join it. It was actually a conference for Latin America, so it's mm. really weird. And you turn up this conference... I'd never been to Miami at that stage and got to this hotel and I thought, and I got to the room and I thought, wow, it had an outdoor deck pool, like this outdoor deck, and it had a spa, big spa, outdoor spa mm. in it. I thought, this is pretty damn flash. You know, it looked like Scarface sort of stuff. Well, well I have to say, so uh, at that time, um, Miami was awash with cocaine. I know, uh, not my thing, but I was... I was in the Bahamas in living there in 87, 88, which yeah. was just across from Miami. And Miami, massive influx of uh, money because it was the main stopping off point for cocaine in the States. It was a crazy town. Oh, it's, look. I, you, you, hence Miami Vice, the TV Hence series. Miami Vice. Um, yeah, well, it, look, I, I wasn't on that side of it on the cocaine mm. trail. I wasn't out there. 
would have been an interesting sideline to have done, but I, I never mm. got into it. Close I got to was sherbet with a licorice in the top. Yeah. But, and I met Gary there, and Gary was going to do um, a, a speech. So, sorry, folks, Gary Horner, he was uh, ex-London, and, and, he, and he, he had done one of the, what was one of the most famous ads in the Hamlet. UK at the time, which was photo the Hamlet Cigars, with Ryan which was Photo Booth, which um, hopefully I'll remember to put on the, yeah. um, put on the link, because this was held up as being you know, one of the best ads in the UK at the time. Uh, I, I believe, and don't cry me on this, it won Khan's Ad of the Century. Yeah, if there is such an award, but that's what Gary told yeah. me. Yeah, which was odd because it was based on a, and it was uh, a, a it was a direct copy. Yes. <laughs> well, an inspired. Dare by. I say? Oh, okay. Well, it was the same actor. Yeah, it was the, the same, same actor. Rav C. Nesbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With his, his, his hair, the way his my hair's getting. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, but um, yes, it was very inspired by that. I would say, Paul. Uh, yeah, I'd say. But yeah. that, that's what that's what. what you did then and that's what a lot of people do now just take a scene from a comedy show or a movie and change the logo and bingo I, but I think now they did it and they found it and you know a lot of creativity I think anywhere through the art scene or whatever is begged still and borrowed well, well uh, pop art look at pop art because I say good, good artists uh, borrow great artists steal. steal yeah I mean you know it's not like anyone you know Andy Warhol another bastard ink where the, yeah yeah bastard where, where, where do you get that Andy where do you get that fucking idea from for a Campbell soup can yeah yeah, <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, there it is. There's the can. Hmm. Made his made his bloody career, and Photo Booth probably made Gary and Ryan's career. Yeah, and they they did other great stuff. Well, I met Gary in Miami, um, and we were in a, in a bar. Spa pool. Oh, bar! And he was talking about, oh, I got to do this speech. I better get it right. And I said, oh, you know, I, I like doing speeches. I'm not great at podcasts, as you can hear, but. Yeah. I don't mind I mean, no. doing, doing yeah. impromptu speech or wedding speeches in my mm. speciality. He said, could you help me? And I said, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll help you. Not that he needed it. He had, he, he, Gary was great. He did the, the speech, but then we just hung out. We just seemed to, I like Gary, and I, was, I kind of knew the work he was doing, and I was certainly aware of the work that DDB Sydney were doing, and I just thought, well, he, this guy's done a bit, you know. He, he's got some credentials, whatever... You may feel when you look around people, he, he was great. And I like Gary a lot and he's very good. And he said, why don't you come and work for, with me and for me in Sydney? I said, I like the with me bit. Not sure mm. about the for me bit. but uh, And I thought when he said that, it's just talk over a few beers. And nothing would come of it until I got contacted by Johnny Blompier, who was the CEO of the agency at the time. Yeah, Great guy, uh, a planner by trade, yeah. lovely bloke, big bloke, big. And Nick Cleaver. Yep. who was the managing the uh, director. The, yeah, he's got Cleaver Means, you know. But, and a very excellent, I will say this, Nick Cleaver is one of the best closers of a pitch that you ever see. He really knows how to string the work together. I do admire that in him. But they came to Auckland to meet with me. Now, I mean, that made a big impression because it wasn't like, you know, we'll send you a ticket, bring your book, and we'll, you know, Gary's mentioned, but we want to check you out. They flew. Hmm. And I thought, well, they're, they're obviously serious about it. And we went to Prago, I think. And and I liked Johnny instantly. Um, he would tell me interesting facts. They had the Northern Territory account at the time. He said, you know, Michael, if you're in a river, and it's like swimming and it's uh, infested with crocodiles. And I, you know, I thought, fuck, why would you swim in a river with crocodiles, you know? Hmm. But anyway, if you do, 
apparently, according to Johnny, you duck dive and you stay underwater for as long as possible. They won't open their mouths and eat you underwater. They'll take you at the surface, drag you down and start twisting. And then they put you in a lair and come back for you later. So I said, well, that's interesting. I'll know that. Um, how you survive a crocodile attack is, well, avoid it, stay underneath the water. But it was that kind of thing. I thought, this sounds like the company for me. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I'd say this to anyone that's listening, no matter what stage you are in advertising, as long as you've got to get out there and, and grow your learning curve. That's why, you know, you've got to learn. And I wanted to learn because I didn't know that much. Even after 10 years of DDB, I think I was a hopeless Crocodile avoidance tips. You're listening to Truth and Soul. The New Zealand Advertising Podcast. So I took the job. They offered me uh, ECD based in Sydney with Gary. And at the time, they had a Brisbane agency and a Melbourne agency. And they said, look, we can use you to impact in those two agencies as well. Uh, I took the job moved across the the ditch walked into ddb and at the time it was in this old building wasn't there new yeah, flash North one Sydney. yeah and berry street and mm. it was like an office we're like a 1970s accountants yeah it was grim the crates had a big large floor though and that was the first thing i noticed the size of the creative department i mean there were a lot of teams there there was a pitch on which a lot of old school um, people will know about uh, for ANSET and Air New Zealand. Yeah. And, I, and I'd say it was about 2001, 2002. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was done in Run Out of Melbourne. Run Out of Melbourne. And I didn't go to Melbourne to 2005, so it may have been a bit Were earlier. You know I, I, I was down half of Auckland, yes. half of Sydney were all staying down in Melbourne to run this pitch. I believe they had 11 agencies. Yes, it was, it was absolutely absurd. Eleven agencies, and I, I think that they that they called the pitch just to to get people flying because everyone was flying between the Auckland, oh, Sydney, it, and Melbourne, yeah, and, and, and the, they got an um, DDB got an apartment down yes. there and, and filled it full of creatives. And every day we go into work at DDB Melbourne. It was, yeah, with Ted. Yeah, Ted uh, Horton and uh, Gary. Yeah, was everyone was everyone was, was was dragged in. I mean. Well, Sydney, uh, Sydney, Sydney did that a lot. Sydney was a bit of a powerhouse. We we're very good at pitching. We won a lot of business. Um, Johnny Blompio is one of the, the the best people for opening a pitch and doing it. He was uh, clever. He never liked to rehearse. Johnny, yeah. have a read through, but not rehearse. He liked spontaneity. Was Nick? If Nick was running the pitch, you'd be rehearsing three or four times. Mm. Um, I preferred to pitch with Johnny. I, I found it dynamic. Yeah. So, Amset uh, and New Zealand called called a pitch i don't know why but it was above my pay grade called a pitch got 11 agencies across australia and new zealand involved in 11 it sh shows pretty poor um uh, management 11 11 agencies involved and then halfway through they went bust and cancelled the whole thing exactly and, and told every single agency that i've spoken to because a, a lot of people were involved in that pitch told every single agency that was involved that had they not gone bust they would have won yeah, I know. It was part of the ludicrous nature that we often sometimes encounter in our business, I guess. It's the iceberg waiting for the Titanic. Yeah. It, and, it, yeah, it just shows what sort of whores that we can be. Not us. We're told we're just giving our marching orders, but you'd think any agency worth its salt would have said, look, as much as we are desperate, 
or we like money, which either one, we're not going to go in with 11 other freaking agencies. Yeah. We're not going to do it. It's a waste of everybody's time. We have a 1 in 11 chance of winning. If I said to you, you know, it, it's terrible odds. Would you get on a plane, you've got 1 in 11 chance it's going to crash? Well, I should be okay, maybe. I wouldn't get on there. But, you know, they, they do, and, it, and, that, and that happened a lot. Um, Gary never liked doing that. He very much anchored in DDB Sydney. He didn't really like have to go out and do that kind of thing. He thought it was yeah. a waste of time. He'd rather... Gary's, Gary is notoriously early. He'll be at work by about 7.30. He has a white pad and he uses a fountain pen. And he loves it. He freaking loves every aspect of doing and creating ads and working with Gary was a, was a privilege because I shared an office with him that's how welcoming he was he wasn't well you know you're not going to come in no we opened up we shared an office uh, there was a, a, another one uh, another CD in there Tony and you so you had three of us operating and there's the multiple multiple teams and sometimes we had the secret sherry club on a Monday where you go in and start the morning and Gary would pour a little nip of vintage sherry for all of us, brief what we got coming up in the week, the three CDs, and we'd knock back the uh, mm. sherry. And then we'd go out and deal with the teams and, and get on with it. So we had the secret sherry club, which was done. He ran it sort of very much like a, almost like a ship, <laughs> a sea captain ship. <laughs> yeah, drinking all day. <laughs> well, no, not drinking all day. I mean, we did that at lunchtime. Yeah. But, no, yeah, you've got to wait for lunch, Paul. Oh, sorry. And in North Sydney, talking of lunch, it had a restaurant downstairs. Just, just so you make, yeah, you, you, you just wait. You just come down from the office elevator as it opens, right across the road is an Italian restaurant with a big garden, saying, "Come and get pissed here." Hmm. I'm just popping downstairs, have a, a bite of pasta, and think about this brief and discuss it in depth. Cut to six o'clock. But the the thing is, you know, we used to have work would be sent down from the studios for sign offs and things. Like Corey's carrying in, so yeah. it was convenient. It was convenient, but um, I, and that's Sydney. It was very, very different to uh, the culture in Auckland. It was work hard, play hard. Yeah, whereas in, in Auckland, the motto is work. Well, work, and you you get to do some play. You get to go to a lunch once in a while, and sometimes they're extravagant. Sure. Uh, other times, you may get a Christmas party. Uh, in Sydney, I'm not saying it was always like that. Let's get some perspective here I mean but we worked very hard the teams worked incredibly hard the account service the planners everyone in the agency worked hard the studio especially but it was a lot of play as well yeah. and a lot of the ideas are written across the lunchtime table and if we go back and we speak about the campaign palace for yeah. a second if we jump back in time folks the Palace, were, were they went out for lunch. I'm not saying they wrote all their great stuff because of lunch or they did it all the time, but they were certainly a, you know, a fun agency and it reflected the advertising of that time. People went out, people went to the pub, people came back and you can still write ideas. In fact, I've seen some amazing stuff written that's come back, believe it or not, by lunch, where you get people around throwing ideas in. And I think it also broke down the structure of the office because a lot of the time, remember, uh, Berry Street was an open plan. A lot of the agencies were set up, you had your office, so you're in your little piece. Whereas now, you know, whatever you think of open plan or whether you feel working around a big, large table and you're throwing ideas how script writers work, I guess that sometimes a lunch could do that. But it's like everything. You needed to let people know where you were. If you had something you had to be back for, you couldn't really sit there and drink all day. 
and you had to deliver. And if you did, if you did all those three, and you got it right, and it worked, there wasn't there wasn't a, a problem. So Sydney was, yeah, hard work and hard, lots hard, of play. Hard, hard work, but fun. So you um, you came back to Auckland, and and at some stage you went, I know what, um, a bit. Let's do something different. I know I'll be a poet. Well, I. Uh, uh, after, well, after, kind of before Auckland, I sort of they, I went to and ran Melbourne, right, for a, a while. We just in Sydney, I think the agency had picked up Camera Brief Agency of the Year, which was great for all the everyone who worked in the agency. But then we, they said to me, you know, do you want to go up to Melbourne? Maybe we can give it a go. And I think that agency with Andrew Little was running it, mm-hmm. and he assembled a good team. Uh, Ian Full, fantastic planner from uh, London, BMP. And it was a great it was a great time. We worked together. We won a um, Victorian Agency of the Year in Ad News. We won it in, in BNT. So coming off the back, it was a nice place. The agency suddenly began to get some profile. We won business. We pitched a lot, and the the, the teams that worked there, there was a young teams, used to doing like nothing. They didn't had they rose the occasion. They put the hours in. I couldn't have asked anything more. They were paid to pittance. I tried to. I never took a pay rise while I was there. It was offered because it was more about trying to, you know, I just felt, geez. And that agency won the Agency of the Year award. Yeah. So it just shows you when you work as a team, it's cool. But, Paul, in 2008, like you were, you did a croupier, so I clapped my hands at the table and buggered off and came back yeah, here. That, well, you know why they clapped their hands? No. So there's nothing in them. Ah, oh, I thought it was... That, that, no, it, it, it's not chop, chop, it's, they, they do that. Yeah, to show there's nothing in the hands. <laughs> nothing in your hand. No, you know, up your sleeve. But that's the second second thing you learnt today. It goes with a crocodile. Yeah. Well, I guess the reason was um, my relationship had, had sort of gone astray. There was a lot of hours working in Melbourne, and my partner mm. didn't like living in Australia. She wanted to go back. We we had my son Oliver, and she mm. just felt there was a better circle of parents there and the kids, and she was probably right. Mm. So I spent a lot of time flying from Melbourne to Auckland and vice versa. I mm. see my son, and he was when, as soon as he was going to turn five, around about four, I just felt this wasn't sustainable. I need to be there when my son grows up. I want to take him to school, and that should be my priority. And at the same time, it was all ending anyway for the Australian management and myself. So that was cool. It was like serendipity, fantastic, mm. actually. Um, so I came back to Auckland 2008, uh, got a house in sunny Beach Haven yep. on the water, got in there and thought, well, what, what, what next? Uh, so I didn't do anything for three or four months, just hung out with my son, took yep. him, walked him to school, go to Ponsonby where his, his mum, walk him to school, hang out with him, have him over. And that's what I did full time, Dan. I loved every second of it. And then I thought, well, what happens when the money runs out? I had fish at the bottom of my property. You can catch snapper off the bottom of Mm. my property. And I thought, well, there's snapper, rice, soy sauce. Things could be worse. Yeah. But I didn't know what to do. So luckily I got contacted by DDB. DDB were keen internationally because I'd done a lot of work with with the Pinnacle Awards. You know those awards, they'd look at the internal work. Yeah. And I'd spent a lot of time with Bob Scapelli, and he's fantastic. Great, great guy, Bob. Oh, Bob's great. And when the whole Australian thing, he said, if you want to come to Europe, you want to come to America, just come over here. Uh, and I said, well, actually, thanks, but my son is really driving it now. So DDB got in contact with me and said, listen, you know, we need some help. 
And I said, well, I need some money. That would be good. I thought, well, this is a way to top up, keep the savings in there. I said, but I like to work from New Zealand. I like to set up a table and sit outside on the deck. And I think it's a healthy way of working. And anyone who works with me, they can come there and that will be the office, the table. And, and Martin Brown, you know, Martin Brown. Brownie, yeah. Great, great writer. And he would come and do work with me. In fact, we set up the table on, on, online. We thought, well, why not? In between gigs, while we're looking, we set up the table. And the concept was, you know, work around the table. And that was an idea created by Andy Lish. Andy Lish first did the table in Melbourne. I mean, another part of Andy's genius. Yeah. You know, he can just think. So we, we, he, he kindly gave us the use of that. That's his idea. But the first gig was from DDB Korea. So this was before... Well, yeah, I guess it was in the middle of the the great rise of Korean um, the Korean economy with the, the car companies and Samsung, and it yeah. really became a, a powerhouse of Asia. Well, it, well, yes. I mean, well, this is so what two thousand and eight. I think they're pretty well established, but Korea has grown. I mean, you saw it; it yeah. replaced Japan. Okay, I Didn't don't know it? that it replaced Japan. Well, but it's. Do you buy more LG than you do Sony? Well, yeah, because in the eighties I buy more Sony. Subaru than I do Samsung. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I mean, we could play top trumps here if you bought yeah. the cards. You, you can yeah, be I, I, okay. Japan. I've got Toyota. What do you got? Me, uh, German <laughs> Volkswagen Golf. Yeah, the ones that, you can rely on. They tell that, the truth. That, that's not Korean. But. No, but it's kind of. They're making more of them in China actually, but. Yeah, they said, do you want to work on, do some work for DDB Korea? And they had a pitch for kiwi fruit, um, uh, kiwi fruit gold and green, I think, as well. So they wanted an idea. So they were pitching to win the kiwi fruit account in Korea. From So it's a bit of New Zealand connection. There was a, um, Les is a fantastic suit, a, had done a, a, a great job. Um, Les, who is now, he, he, he was a Kiwi guy who was in uh, DDB Korea and is now in Nelson running the yeah. marketing, I think, for the yeah. Tasman rugby team, Marcos. Yeah, yeah he's, he's a great guy. So, I keep saying all these great guys, they're not, but like good fellas. But, yeah, we did this thing. So I start, Martin and I were writing it, you know, it has to be simple. And they sent us a lot of stuff from DDB Korea and it was about blood types. They had a campaign because blood type is very important, what blood you are. And they tried to build this campaign about blood types. And I didn't understand it's a cultural thing. So how would I understand that? So I wasn't sure what to do. Um, we just kept, But it had lots of vitamins and nutrients in a kiwi fruit. It's a really wonderful piece of fruit. It's small, it's compact, it delivers a, a lot of punch for its fiber or vitamins. This is better than an apple. Yes, you have to peel it. I realize that, but it's good. And you, you, we, we, we did a campaign, and then they said, come to Korea, meet with the agency, work in there on the ground. So I did. Went over there, and that was a strange experience, Paul, working in, in Korea. Uh, everyone, it was just a very different culture. Everyone starts late. I actually turned up one morning on time, like 9 o'clock, and no one's there. They don't start to about 10, 11, because you work late. You mm. work through about 11 o'clock at night. So I did some work there, and I liked the staff. I liked them a lot. And we had a female creative director in there. She's fantastic. It was, I mean, you get used to the culture. I got taken out lots. We had soju, a lot of soju. 
And I, I kind of liked it, and I liked career. And then they bought me more often. They would give me contract gigs, and I felt like I was working full time. So I'd do ten days there, fly back home, then they fly me back across. Um, got me to go out with dinner with clients. Uh, then Beijing got wind, and then Shanghai got wind, and DDB got me into Shanghai. I did gigs in uh, Beijing, Volkswagen, working yeah. on that, and they looked after me once again. I like, I like China. But that work was great. But at the same time, when I was back in New Zealand, getting to the point of your podcast, yes. I guess, a roundabout way. Yeah, it hasn't taken as long, folks. Go. Go. Okay. I, I, I had a, a head of art. She's Swedish. She worked for me in Melbourne. And yeah. she's fabulous. She's great. And she ran all the things. As soon as I saw the work, I just thought, you need to be running all these things fantastic and even though we'd gone she left when I left the same team we were partnered up she said oh, I've had enough now very sweet I'm, I'm out of here just walked she's in Ireland now doing books ironically she said to me sent an email and said there is a young artist you need to look at I think she's very interesting and I clicked on it and it was Lang the Av and she, mm. Lang was in Sydney she had launched uh, a fashion range of clothing in Japan. She had won the Qantas Spirit of Australia Youth Award. She won a Churchill Fellowship Award. So back to Mr. Churchill. 1874. Yeah. 1874, she'd won that. And she was also, apart from fashion and doing art, she was doing handmade books. Limited numbers, 100 only, small. And she'd write like little poetry, do all the artwork, but handmade, made by hand, all beautiful. Tim Burton got one, yeah. the director. And I just thought, wow. That is good. I like that. I do like the, the word. That fascinates me because I was seeing, you know, typography done. I was seeing craft skills, writing skills, art skills, all in the one. And, you know, Paul, you look through book after book and mm. book and book. And I thought, here's this girl, and she's won these awards at such a young age. Uh, she grew up in a refugee camp. Yeah. Parents have fled the Khmer Rouge, literally, the whole village. So she's Camb Cambodian? She's actually Chinese. There were Chinese living in Cambodia. I think they had a sugar factory, and then the Khmer Rouge came in, um, put them in a, them and their, all their relations into a camp. And her father got on with one of the guards in there, and he said one day, you and your, you, your wife, and at the stage it was just the Lang's two brothers, young kids, mm. you leave now. And he meant now, he said, you tell no one no one or you're dead they literally went into the jungle there and then not much later came in they killed everyone in the village the Khmer Rouge killed all Lang's relatives killed them all so I mean when you think of that what a horrible thing you know you all got families you can't tell anyone yeah no, it's, it's crazy what, what went on in oh, that it's terrible. part of Asia and they went through I think you know they walked for a couple of days get to the Thailand and then Lang's mum realised she was pregnant and we're talking about you know there was no nice refugee camp in the 1980s, it wasn't very nice at all. We didn't have social media putting spotlights. It was just what you might see on the six o'clock news. So Lang was born in the refugee camp, and then eventually they, they arrived in Australia. Uh, Cabramatta, they went to Melbourne first, then they got sent to Cabramatta, which is the West Sydney. And that whole area in the 80s got taken over by crime. You had gangs, the five Ts, Vietnamese gangs. You had Australians. Uh, Pauline Hansen starting up at the time, you know, Asians out, Asians are destroyers. And then she changed the rhetoric and applied it to Muslims. So that's she, how Lang grew up. She went to Cabramatta High, 
I, I think they had this weird motto about, you know, they, they train you to serve, you know, you, and they used to take them around factories. That's their inspiration. When you leave school, you go and work in the factory. So putting that all together, I thought, what a remarkable achievement uh, to have done. So I bought a piece of art. I like art. I collect yeah. art. And I'm not in a major way or anything significant, but I like art. But I, I wrote to her and I bought a piece of art. And then I started talking, you know, online. I just said, you know, is there a story behind this piece of art? And we started talking uh, for a long time online. And then she asked me one day, said, look, I'm thinking about my brand. I, I read somewhere you did advertising. Is that true? I said, yes. She goes, do you think that I could talk to you about my brand? I said, yes, but I'm not going to keep typing here endlessly. Mm. If you're serious, here's my number. No pressure, but you can give me a call on Sunday at this time. And I gave her time. And Lang rang. And we spoke on the phone. We got on well. We spoke about our brand. And I said, you know, instead of calling yourself a keener by Lang Liab, just become Lang Liab as is the brand. Move that forward for your art. And I said, we need to get your art out of Australia. It needs to be in galleries in LA. So that's the next strategy. Get you in because then you replay that news back into Australia, LA artists, whatever. And oh, it's the same, same in New Zealand, I guess, that, yeah. that to do well in New Zealand or Australia is not enough. You have to have done well internationally and then that will help To be you. embraced. And yeah. I mean, this is where, even though this has seemed like a roundabout journey, I mean, the selling on the bears of my ass got me into advertising in a roundabout way, helped with pitches and presentations. Mm. And the, the, getting to the books is exactly right. This is, it came from meeting Lang. We spoke for a year. Yeah. On the phone, Skyping, she met my son, as far as talking on the Skype, and got to know each other. And I said, well, you're welcome. Come have a look at New Zealand. Come over. Forget LA. What about Beachhaven? Well, yeah, well, I, I said, come over. We should meet in person. We never met mm. in person. Never met. Never. I mean, and it's, I don't use photographs. Mm. I certainly don't. On all my social media, I've tried to get... I haven't had photos taken for years. And I, I believe that privacy is the best thing you can get these days, the nicest thing you can have yeah uh, that that's interesting excuse me michael because i looked up uh, i looked you up on quora oh yeah do i exist quora uh and uh kids quora is what is it it's kind of it's a, uh, it's a website where people ask questions you ask questions and, and people right. answer. when was when was churchill ball 1874 yeah so we know so the, these are these are the questions uh, on quora is michael fode really a person or just an imagination of langley ave Yes. Uh, is Michael Fode truly a mystery? Is it bad that I hate Michael Fode? Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I know, in equal measure. Can you show me a picture of Langley and Michael Fode together? Because people yeah. seem to think you are the same person. Person. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's. Well, you know how that started. Is Langley actually Michael Fode? Mm, um, no, not really. I am a big fan of Michael Fode. If given the chance, would he meet me in person? That's, that's just weird. Yeah. 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 So. Oh, well, that's the thing. Well, because, Paul, I never. Yeah, photographs I don't use. I use an image of Mandrake the Magician. It's, I've always used it. And yeah. I like it. I guess people put up cartoons or their favourite whatever. I put that up and I stuck with it. I just applied it to all the social media brands. But, I mean, with all the all that questions, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly get to that quickly. But Lang basically came across, booked her a room at the Siebel, because I felt it was the right thing to do for a mother, you know, come some stranger's house. Hmm. I mean, for she knew, my house is, you know, a caravan somewhere out near Albany. 
yeah. where I sharpen my axes. So you moved out of that yeah, caravan. Yeah, I sharpen my axes. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. that's right. Come here, young lady. Yeah. So I, I thought, look, you know, you need your own space. Have that space. Come over for the weekend, long weekend. We catch up. At the very best, we'll be friends, hopefully. And uh, we met at SPQR. So she met me at SP. I thought a nice place, That's, dark. Yeah, everything starts at SPQR. Yeah, dark, and I like the dark mm. part of it. Yeah. Very flattering, you know, the light. Yeah. Um, and then we met, and I think before we even got to after the entree, she said, oh, what's your house like? Why don't we have a look at that? Because I don't mind restaurants, you know, but I'm happy. But we can look, and I said, well, we'll finish the entree. I don't need to stick stick around. Lang doesn't really drink wine, so... Mm. Which is, is great. I said, but I will say to you, it's across the bridge. It's not like it's down the road and you have a lot. If you feel comfortable. And she said, yeah, of course, I want to see it. And she came to the house. She opened the door and said, oh, it's like a gallery. She says, your house is like an art gallery. I said, yeah, dusty, dirty art. Well, not dirty, dusty art gallery. And she came in and we hit it off. And she said, why am I staying at the sea? But why can't I stay here? I said, well, you can stay here, obviously. I was just... Mm. And from that point on, we hit it off. We, we worked on stuff, and then we found that we liked each other a lot as well, Paul, and we got on. And she had seen some of my writing, because in the downtime between going off to Korea and Beijing, I, was, I started to write stuff, just for mental therapy, really. It wasn't mm. poetry, by the way. I was just writing bits of for novels or ideas. She read it, she said, I love it, I love it, I love it. And she goes, you know, even though I've done fashion, I do art, I really, my strong point is writing, I love writing. So I said, well, I've got a studio here, a studio, get another Mac, two desks. Mm. And it worked. She stayed, and we decided that we'd be together. A stroke of luck, I might add, a real stroke of luck. And then Lang um, came there, and I decided, well, I'm going to focus on Lang. If I was going to do any creative direction or work, I'll focus on the brand Lang we have. Mm. Not that I needed to, because Lang runs her own show. She's got the brains in the, in the partnership. We got into art galleries in LA first. We did it. We achieved it. She did the Playboy, I think, a, a big anniversary show. She got invited. She's, her work is in um, LA, bits of New York. So that was going good. But Lang, meanwhile, would just write poetry and prose just because she could. And then she started using Tumblr, which was a social, oh, is a social media blogging site. Very um, introspective of the yeah. social media. You can't just chat around. You can now, but the days. It was, you put your pictures up there, you lived in your dark world. But anyway, she started to post a few of the prose and poetry pieces up, and they just began to go viral. People seemed to really like them. They were going, wow. And I said to, well, Lang said to me, you know, look, people like it. And I said, oh, you know, but it's, the, you know, poetry. And I was mm. thinking in the back of my head, you know, at the time I was still smoking, I had a cigarette on my deck, thinking, fuck, you know, poetry. Mm. How will poetry books sell? You know, how would you sell that in New Zealand? And I have visions of standing at some market mm. stand, you know, buy this pie, and we come home and say, well, we, that wasn't bad. We sold six books today. Mm. You know, and mm. I thought I could sell, but I'm not sure we're going to get critical mass. But Lang believed in it, and, and that's the great thing about Lang. She just said, oh, well, it's getting the, the sales. And then, of course, it dawned on me, to your earlier point, you know, act locally, but think globally. It's kind of, just because we're here doesn't mean we have to sell everything here, and I think it's a fatal mistake. It's different if you're an all-black. You know, if you're Richie McCaw and, you, you know, you put a book out at Christmas time, chance our dad's going to buy it. But even with us, and that's a successful book, 
here in New Zealand. But you're, you're talking about on global, yeah, good living, good book. I'd be very happy with it. You know, I don't know, 30,000 or whatever. Mm. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. Brilliant. But you're not necessarily going to make a living on that. And that is rugby to a rugby mad nation. And there's rugby fans all around the world, so other people might buy it. But poetry, for goodness sake, going back to headline, poetry is dead, Barnes and Noble. But having said that, I would stay up at night and I thought, I'm going to fucking study this market. I'm going to learn as much as I can about it. And I looked at it and I believe there was a, a gap to disrupt in that market. And what was giving me the clues, what Lang was writing and how it was going viral. Uh, millennials. Millennials sort of interface. There was a perfect storm happening. You know, they were sick of poetry at school. You know, boring, bloody, you know, got to listen to this and mm. difficult, it's hard and... And therefore, they weren't going near it. At the same time, they were texting each other. They read memes. Uh, brevity. Brevity. Brevity was the key. We want things quickly. We want it simple. Social media was really a, a soapbox for everyone to start standing on. It's become a mirror to reflect what we're really like as a human race, I guess, G the good and the bad. But social media was people expressing, and now I studied the target. You know, I looked at the shops and thought, well, poetry selling's not good. It's not good, but it's a simpler market if you could make it good than say, I'm going to write a book and expect you're going to be next to James Patterson next year. You're fucking not. Mm. So we thought it was a weak market if we could do anything with it. And then Lang stuff taking off, and people started writing to, oh, I wish you had a book. I wish we had a book out there. And we thought, mm, well, that's an, interest, an interesting point. Uh, it seemed that millennials wanted to talk about love. They wanted to talk about feelings, anxiety, expressions, same as everyone. Uh, and Lang writes beautifully, but she could sometimes write some simple pieces as well. I mean, if Lang wants to, she could write like Charles Dickens. But she wrote some pieces, and they, they touched people. It was amazing seeing how people sort of react. And they would send, because, you know, you can't just write like, Facebook on Tumblr, as I said, but they could send messages and would see it. So we thought, well, why don't we make a book? Why don't we put a book out there, sell it on Amazon? And what self, we, self publishes? Yeah, well, self publish. And uh, I looked into that. So I said, right, well, we know the audience is millennials on social media. And we believe that they will read and enjoy this kind of writing. Uh, it would be a female bias, 95% female. Men aren't just reading enough. Yep. They don't read. Uh, we also identified Asia as massive. Asians are better educated. They read more mm. than what, say, in America. And no offense to America. I know a lot of Americans do, and you read lots. I'm just, this is a very big generalization. I apologize if you get upset, but it seemed that Asia was more with it. You said Americans can't read here. Keep going. <laughs> Well, you, but I don't know why you didn't. Like, I don't know why you don't like Sandy more. I don't know why you don't like Sandy more. He's a great fucking guy, Sandy. I'm surprised. I know you like Pete, but I oh, know I'm only kidding with you. But that, uh, fun editing that. But the the thing with the uh, the book, the self publishing, you can either you know physically go to some printer down the road and say, can you print me some, you know, print me a thousand copies. And stick it in your garage and they'll probably stay in your garage for 10 years yeah. and it's expensive so self-publishing you know Amazon do it with Create Space but I didn't trust Amazon fully I sort of heard they're good mm. and yes they'll promote you on their channel a little bit but they can hinder you getting into bookstores or going elsewhere so we found a different group that was backed by Ingram Spark which distribute books all around the world 
So we knew we could get on Amazon anyway. We knew we could get on the book depository that do free worldwide delivery. Great place to buy your books. We knew we could get into, more importantly, barnesandnoble.com, the Barnes and Noble online stores. Mm. And so we found this company. Lang had written a manuscript. We got a company in Melbourne to lay it out, proof check it, do it all. Lang designed the artwork cover artwork for the book and we went for print on demand which is beautiful because print on demand is if if paul Katma orders a book from amazon or from anywhere they print one book and it goes out yeah so slightly more per unit but here's the rub you can set your own price i would set it say $16.99 usd we can decide on how much money we want to make from that at the time on that particular one we said 10 usd per book sold which when you compare it to a publishing royalty where a publisher is, is talking cheese. 10 USD, no returns, buy it, you don't like it, burn it. But we're not having it back, thank you. Mm. And we put the book out there, and we had also been building up our Facebook, not on our personal, we created a business page, we've been building that up. Uh, we bought another... Yeah, you, uh, you, sorry, you, you paid to promote on Facebook? No, we were we just created a business page. Hmm. So you had Langley Ave Personal, Langley Ave, I guess what they call their business pages. And at the time, Zuckerberg hadn't done the bait and switch, where he says, oh, right. come up here, and then right. now we're going to turn off your viewership down unless you pay. Yeah. So it was a serendipity and luck, Paul. That was hmm. all it was. So if you got followers on there, they saw what you were putting up. We also bought a couple of Tumblr blogs. There was a big blog it was run by a guy and it went to Asia. I think it had around about, at the time, I'm not sure, 400 to 500,000 people on it. So we bought that, did a deal with him, uh, and we got it at a reasonable price, very reasonable. I, I can't remember exactly. I don't know, 10 grand, not sure. So he had a blog and you, and you just took it over? Yeah, bought it. Wait, 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 and started you writing your own stuff? Well, no, what we do, he had this very popular blog that it, it was called uh, Love Quotes. And it put out all different stuff. So I had a lot of followers, you know, like I said, you know, four to 600,000. And, you know, a post could go up there, Paul, and it'd get 23, 30,000, 40,000 likes quickly. So we contacted him. A lot of these are just kids running in there, or he was an actual guy who was running, he wasn't a kid. He said he wants, I don't know, 10 grand from memory at the time, uh, US. And that's a lot for it, it was a lot for me at the mm. time. I had money. You remember, I was just doing a bit of the old gig, watching the bank account go downwards. And this, and I'm thinking, and what you're buying is some Tumblr blog. You know, give them the money and you get nothing back. You can't see any of the people. And the way it works, you give them the money, they give you the password. Once you've got the password, you can act to change the password. And you control the blog, so you can put up content like it runs. And we could thread a few of Lang's work every now and mm. again, so it doesn't become the Langley ad blog. You keep it at business as usual, yeah. but get the work out there. And we did that. We secured that, and we secured another blog for less money out of South America that specialised in just black and white pictures, but we'd see the work in. So we started that up because we realised that to get to our target market was social media was the best way. So you must the pair of you or you must spend an awful lot of time on social media curating. Posting, well, we, 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 in the beginning, which is 2013, we're speaking now, um, we did spend a lot of time because we had to. So, like, like you know, half, half your day? Not really. What you do, you do bursts because you look at 
the markets. You know, Asia comes online later than here, mm. and America's different. Mm. Uh, and we always, we identify the target would be Asia and, and the US, not Australia, not New Zealand. Mm. I said, if we try to sell in New Zealand, be a success here, we're going to have no money. We're yeah. raising a turnip fucking patch. Mm. So... We we did work on that. You do two-hour bursts or whatever, and you, you check. But Lang's writing as well. You know, she's doing things, and I'm taking out the garbage. There's a dog to be walked and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So life goes on. But we got the book together. We priced it at our price point. Um, we sent it out into the ether, and it went up. And in the first month, we sold 10,000 copies moved. And I suddenly went, geez, we're making 10 USD a book, 10,000 moved in a month. <laughs> right. So mm. I just sort of went back and you kept looking. I kept looking mm. at it, you know, so I don't, I don't trust the figures. And, and it, was all, it was sold through the blogs. So well, I that, guess that... so. Collectively, people found out about her work. So we said, you know, they've been asking. Now there's a book. It's called Love and Misadventure. Here's a picture of that. Mm. And it went to number one on Amazon, which wasn't difficult. In poetry. in poetry, yeah. Right, but it's still a number one. It's number one Alfred best-seller. Lord Tennyson. Yeah, and he's, a, he's a good guy, but it was mm. number one. But there are still what I call the mon poets like Mary Oliver, and there's a, a few of them out there selling yeah. well. So you fall into that category, and suddenly this book arrives, Love and Misadventure from New Zealand. And Sorry, because if you go New Zealand, New Zealand, Australia, you go, uh, not many people are interested in poetry in those two countries. But if you go the world yeah. as a whole, you you only need 0.001% to be interested in it. And you've and got, you've got a, you, you, you nailed it. That was our mm. strategy. Act local, mm. think global. And what have we got to lose, Paul? Oh, it's just as hard and expensive to try and flog it around here sure. than it is to take it over there and give it a go. You yeah. have nothing to lose. Mm. But the, the the book, yeah. Once you got the best the bestseller, and that was in all poetry, by the way, at the time, all freaking poetry shot up the chart. And we 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 just go, oh, well, that can't be right. And and you, the way that the they pay, I think it was it quarterly or bi monthly, you get a check. And the, you know, when the check came in, it was good. It, well, I'll go, fuck, hmm. Jesus, that was good. Now. Remember, that was the initial burst. So any goodwill we'd built up for months, that was it. So it wasn't like you're going to get, sit back and go, oh, you know, don't worry, next month be another 10,000 sold, yeah. let's pocket the money, this mm. is a good life, I'll buy a yacht. No, it was, of course it's not going to be like that. That was initial burst. But what it did, it put the wind in our sails and then more importantly gave us some capital. Yeah. Uh, you know, we covered, the, our cost that we'd spent on the blog, getting it made up, we covered quickly, we had money left over, I didn't have to work. Go and take freelance work or contract work with DDB. We had enough to see us through for a year and a bit. Uh, Lang was uh, gloriously happy uh, with that. And then it's kind of we got a um, a phone call from a literary agency in New York, Writer's House. And the original founder of that is a fantastic guy called Al Zuckerman. He founded the company. He's in his, I think, his eighties. And he contacted, he's done lots of, I mean, he's all for, I don't know if you, you guys know, uh, Ken Follett, he wrote All the Pillar of the Earth. Yeah, didn't, didn't so, like it, but no, I'm sure lots yeah, of other people did. Well, they do. It's, I think, he's, I think oh, I saw Ken flogged around about 500 million books. Mm. And then you've got, they've got Neil Gaiman, they've got uh, Stephanie Meyer, all the Twilight series. There's freaking, there's good authors in there. So yeah. we were like, wow. And he rang up and they'd seen the results of 
a pirate book was going to stand out like dog balls within mm. the groups. Barnes and Noble were looking at the damn so they, thing. they were they were just generally looking at, at what's what's hot yeah, in yeah, publishing yeah. and going, hang well, on, well, who, yeah, well, who are these people? Well, we noticed it, and so we approached. Well, when we saw that going, I said, "Well, get a literary agent." Where I said, "Lang, we'll go to New York for one. Why not?" The worst is they say no. Hmm. What if we sell them in? We go, yeah. So we wrote to uh, one agent and to Ryder's house. I said, let's go for the two best. Hmm. Don't fuck around. Start there. One came back and said, we're keen. Let's talk. Uh, Goldrick. So let's talk. And then Ryder's house came back. And Al rang us, contacted us. Got on the phone. We picked it up. Oh, I'm Al Zuckerman. I run the Ryder's house. Very impressed with, you know, I've heard that you wrote to us and we've had a look and... I'd li- he said, I'd like to, uh, you're our writer now. I'm going to send you a contract through yeah, the chattels. fax machine. Yeah, chattels. And I said to Lang, she's going, oh, you know, she's writing a thing. Do you think we should talk about this? Because we have the other one. And I said, well, we should, but he's offering a contract. Take the contract, maybe, <laughs> question mark. And I said, oh, yeah, we'll do that. He sent the contract through. And Lang signed it. She was signed by um, Writer's House in New York. Great literary agency. Couldn't have wished for better. And then a week later, he said, I've sold the book, sold it to a US publisher. They're going to take the book over from you guys. So there'll be a handover in a month. They'll lay it all out, put their logo on it. And then we can transfer the sales messaging and all of that. And then we'll take the book over. So we, that's what happened. That They took the book over. And then the book started to really sell. It was selling anyway. And it began to get critical mass. And the book sold heaps. And... So, so you went, you went from self-publishing and getting a, a, a really large yeah. chunk of that price to getting a, a publisher in the state selling far more books, but obviously your chunk. Uh, yeah, well, normally that's goes the, down. Yeah, well, well uh, yeah. I mean, it, you can always adjust on self-publishing. You know, about boring people, ten dollars at the time was the maximum you want to go for a sixteen nine nine novel. Mm. So you sell less, you make more. If you want the bookstores to take your self-published novel, which they will do, if you're lucky, you need to change the price. You have to accept returns, and you have to probably drop that price down to... Well, Barnes & Noble, when I was doing my books, they contacted me, the head buyer, and said, we want to stock some of your books, try it out, selling well on... on so our... before you had an agent? Yeah, before I had yeah. an agent. He just contacted us, but we're probably jumping ahead of ourselves here, but... You know, so you changed the price. He wanted it. I changed it to $4 a book. He said, oh, actually, I meant $2 a book, but he took me anyway. So I still, $4 USD a book, laughing. Uh, for Asia, you probably want to be around about $2 USD a book because, especially countries like the Philippines, you don't want your book priced too much, or India. But with uh, royalties, going back to that bit, you know, publishers don't really pay a lot of royalties. He, it's you just get a small royalty percentage. I think sometimes about fifteen percent, sometimes ten percent. Okay, we're we're getting we're getting quite de- uh, technical there in terms of uh, yeah, that's a bit boring uh, as well. Of, well, I, it, it's in- interesting to me or other people who but who not want to but get not, this but, you wanna... but um oh sorry, but um but, but generally it uh, between the the pair of you, it's been an incredible success. You've you published between you, I don't know four. Well, no, no, Lang's Lang's done. Uh, well, Lang really took off, and she's she's published about five or six poetry books, yeah. uh, two novels. The latest one's just out. Yeah. But her books just began to 
grow in the US, uh, but Asia, amazingly so. We're in, uh, if Lang does a book signing event in the Philippines, she'll have a thousand people turn up. Hmm. They, in fact, they do ticketed. You have to apply, and you have a thousand. She sign a thousand books at a go, and they scream. She has a security detail. Uh, she has drivers. She has a team about six or seven to, for protection. They go through. They now hold them in big open shopping mall areas with several levels because you can't fit uh, crowds into. So, so she's like a, a bona fide celebrity author in absolutely Asia. And she, I, That's I, incredible. I, I'd say she's probably the biggest selling author in New Zealand by far. Uh, uh, so think about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, people, that's, well, that's it's, it's, it's all through social media and and talent, obviously. Uh, well, I, I, look through her talent. I mean, you got to have the talent. I always yeah, say yeah, this sure. to people about. They ask if I get social media, will I be famous? Well, I say this. It's a bit like anything, you know. About it's the same as putting up his writings, like putting up cat pictures and things. Some will work, others won't. Hmm. So you've got to have something there, a reason that people want to share it. If they relate to it, and they can connect with it. So be it. And also, you need to focus on it. I hear so many people, oh, I've got a book, I'm going to start a, a Facebook or Twitter account. They do it for about three months. Oh, I'm a bit bored, I only got three likes on that one. They give up. Yeah. Well, I can assure you, we started with zero and we had to build it. Yeah. We now have over two million, over in excess of two million uh, readers across our social media, which is mainly Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, yeah. which, which is good. You've got to build that dialogue. But that's taken us from 2013 to now to build. So it wasn't like overnight. Yeah, it's yeah. a job. It's a job. I don't think writing a book is a part-time hobby. If you're serious about it, it's a, it's a job. But with Lang, her books have taken off. She does signing. She's came back from the US. She's done signing at uh, Barnes & Noble at the Grove in LA. She did Upper West Side in New York. She did Chicago. She travels around the world. And in fact, right now, she's in Malaysia where to do a signing. So her books... Who, who organises the signings? Is that, is that New York? Uh, uh, publi publisher or some of the bookstores come directly and the publishers pay for Lang all the hotels. We stay when we go to New York, we, we stay. So Lang moved into novels. She did first Sad Girls and now Poemcia as a novel, two novels, because looking at poetry, that whole segment has grown. We're not the only ones in there, several now. It's a very cluttered because our publisher went saw there was money in this, so they went signing up anyone who could write. And sometimes it works, other times it doesn't. So we're lucky to get on the on the ground base. But there's plenty of other poets who sell more than us now. So it's like it took off. People, because girls, especially in America, they walk around. You, know, you don't have to be like, oh, you can be like all those sort of girls who read all the novels, all, all nerdy and smart. I can be like that too. I look at my book. I've got that. I yeah. can read it. Because some things can be a single line. You can say so much. Others are more in depth. Yeah. And and the the thing that we, we see about this connection is that anything that encourages young people to pick up a book in this world has got to be a good thing. Because I fear that books and reading is going down the wayside. So... Anything that gets people, more people in, and that was the success. People who didn't read started to come in, as well as people that did read and go, this is more relatable than, say, Emily Dickinson. I love Emily Dickinson. I love Robert Frost. They were writing beautiful stuff. And Frost writes simply, actually, yeah. in a way. And Charles Bukowski, oh, my God, yeah, I could take his posts out, stick them on the internet now, and they are, see them. There's not, you know, some great ones. There's other ones dodgy. I think you get that. So those books, those her books took off. I mean, I don't know. She sold a lot of books, a lot. I'm going to stop you there, Michael, but, but we will uh, maybe continue this conversation later over lunch. But uh, thank you so much for coming in. I think that's an incredible story. I think it's great that, uh, um, as you say, anything that in encourages people to read um, 
Well, it's it, a good thing. It's good. I, I think it's good, and it also helps people discover other poets. So you might yeah. go and grab one of Lang's books or one of mine, and you find a different poet there, a Robert Frost, a Tennyson. Yeah. Uh, and you pick the book up. So it's about conjuring the love of actual words again. And I think it's good to stop on Lang. We don't need to talk about me and my books because that's a... I, I was, uh, for another time. You, you, you and your books. I was, I was quite happy to go on, but I, just aware of um, a, a Tempest Fugit. Oh, right, yeah. Well, we're doing my books another time. We'll it's do, not we'll, that important. We'll, I mean, the most important ones is Lang. And in a short case, I started writing books. I got picked up by Writer's House, and I've had five books published. The new one's just out, and... New audio books just been bought by Penguin Random House. Who, who reads the audio books? Do you read them? No, I listen to them. No, I've got, I've got paperback books of one publisher. Yeah. And then Penguin Random House came in, outbid my publisher, and stole all the work and made audio books. Oh, 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 they get their own reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, 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 sorry. Yeah, I'm a bit stupid. Yeah. Well, I am a lot stupid. Not a bit. No, yeah. I got British. I said I wanted a British accent, and Penguin said, "Oh, we've got this British actress, um, Catherine McEwen, I think, and she did a great job, and they launched them yesterday. So now we have two publishers. And Lang, they bought Lang's new novel. They snatched. It was like a competitive under came in. There was a bidding war. Yeah. Four people went, including our existing publisher, our books. Penguin just up the ante. And they said, we'll buy everything. And they went in and bought. So, so it's like a two-agency system. We're a client now with two agencies competing, yeah. which is, is good. But I guess with Lang, if it shows anything, from Beach Haven, you can build a sell books to the world. It doesn't matter whether it's books or something else. Yeah. We make a, you know, a reasonable living. We pay the bills. It is poetry. It's not James Patterson stuff. But yeah. it's poetry. It pays better than advertising by far. You've got all the time in the world to yourself, other than writing and doing bits. And here in New Zealand, we keep an absolute low profile. I think Lang's, that Fashion Quarterly did a big feature on Lang, but that's about it. We stay clear of it. Because Lang likes to feel this is my home. We're New Zealand citizens. Uh, we both became citizens, and we just feel that this is our place. It's a great crowded spot and a great place in the world to be. Well, well we have a hugely significant uh, listenership of this um, podcast, Michael. So I'm afraid your your cover might be blown. And uh, uh, if you see three listeners standing outside your oh, beach yeah, haven, complaining, moaning at the work, and then yeah, they put all yeah. the shit work up online. Yeah, people do that, but we put most of the nice things in the books. But everyone sort of gravitates to the more erotic stuff. I don't know why. I, I do. can't think. I don't know. But look, I, I think for anyone out there, you know, I know a lot of time when I was in advertising, everyone was talking about, I'm going to make a book, I'm going yeah. to do a film director. My advice is do it, number one, just freaking do it. Yeah. Don't be afraid to walk away from the regular paycheck. I know it's hard, but set yourself, your life up how you want to do it and find a way you can manage a different life. You know, sell the house, get a nice caravan, stick it on a nice block of land, cut your cost down in half and, and do what you want to do. Think outside your own market, treat it like a full-time job, because it is, that means you're serious. Burn the fucking bridge. You're either doing it or you're not. And go for it. Expect the disappointments, because they're going to come. Understand that with books, it's very difficult. But there's a lot that you learn over the year. I could write a book on, on books and, and taking things to market. And I think New Zealand's got a great opportunity, not just with books, with a lot of its stuff. But so, and the same with music. You know, if you think you do it, 
why not go and live in LA for a while? I know it's not as easy and simple as doing that. Look, it's our wanker, and we're going to fly over there. But you've really got to look outside the square and look to Asia. There's a big freaking clue. Mm. We sell a stack of books. We're always in the top fiction charts in the Philippines. There are millions and millions and millions of people in the Philippines. They read English perfectly because they've had the Catholic Church. You've been listening to Truth and Soul, the New Zealand Advertising Podcast. Michael, thank you so much. Yeah, it was a bit, a bit boring, probably, uh, for your listeners, in? but no, you don't we'll have to we'll use it, We'll edit me out. Yeah, you don't have to that. use it, Paul. But, I mean, uh, I never get offended. But thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. Drop us a line. Paul at truthandsoul.co.nz. Thank you very much to everyone at Franklin Road, Jonathan, Cole, uh, The Wastrel, Shane, Vanessa and Gracie. Otis, who did the logo, and uh, Matt Stalker, who's going to play us out. Thank you. On the farewell drive we found a hundred ways that our hands fit together Centrifugal force pulls us apart as we spin. Please forgive my trembling hands, crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight. While the wicked sleep sound The anxious toss and turn Thoughts come not as single spies But in battalions While the wicked sleep sound The anxious toss and Give my trembling hands crudely silhouetted by the flickering spires of candlelight while the wicked sleep sound I want the anxious toss and turn thoughts come not as single spies but in battalions while the wicked sleep sound I want the anxious toss and turn